Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. For those that have never been here before, thank you for joining us. Please do us a huge favor. Hit that like button. Don't be afraid. Hit the subscribe button. Uh, It really helps us out. Um, Hit the notification bell so you're alerted whenever we go live. If you want very loud, originally played intro music blaring through your speakers, hit that subscribe button. Also, before we start, I want to remind people that tickets are still on sale for the launch party for... Probably shows up backwards since it's a camera. But the book launch party for I Was a Teenage Anarchist is this weekend. Me, Ben Burgess, Chris Contos of Machine Head, Craig LaCicero of Forbidden, and Ricky Knoll of Exodus, originally of Exodus. He's not in Exodus anymore. One of the founding members of Exodus. Unlike a traditional book launch where you read a little bit, and maybe you take some questions from the crowd. We're going to talk a little bit about this. And then we're going to talk to legitimate rock stars, real people that were part of the burgeoning Bay Area metal and hardcore scene in the early 80s. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to take questions from the audience. We're going to have some dope-ass barbecue. There's going to be liquor for you drinkers. And a very cool quaint environment so excited for this so wherever you are watching this show there's a link in the description it was right at the top of the description so you know also we'll be going to the champagne room tonight if you'd like to join us if you'd like to have access to champagne rooms past and present if you'd like to be in the live virtual audience for the pascal robert hosted mau mau hour if you would like to join us for movie night there's only one way to become a patron for as little as $3 a month and $30 for the year. It can all be yours. Also, for patrons, I will be giving out the PDF of I Was a Teenage Anarchist. I'm super excited because the acknowledgements are in here. And the two people on the screen are in the acknowledgements. I want them to know that. I had to thank them. It says, I have to acknowledge my TIR family who helped me synthesize my political worldview. Pascal, Jean, Cuba, MT, Varn, Stefana, and of course, the Quintering. I love you guys. Let me bring in these beautiful people right now. Please welcome the faceless voice of reason that has to deal with me way too much on a personal level. Please welcome MT Sun. Hello, hello. First, I'd like to apologize. There is a party for Metro Boomin going on outside my window. Are you being serious? Dude, I don't know. Why. <laughs> they, just, they just started blasting it. Future is just blaring. Weird. Yeah, they just started doing it. That kind of sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, I can Shazam songs from my bed. When they get like that. <laughs> that reminds me of working at festivals. And you're just like, ugh. 
there was one festival where I actually had to sleep at the festival, like literally on the grounds, because mm-hmm. it was so far in the middle of nowhere. Ugh. Ugh. Just hearing music that you hate constantly, it's a nightmare. Speaking of people that have to hear music they hate, Derek Barn definitely had some choice words for me when I was bumping at the drive-in before we started. Can I say something else? <laughs> no, yes. Thank you. I just wanted to shout out the Affordable Connectivity Program. It's a program from the FCC mm-hmm. to benefit. It's a benefit that helps ensure households can afford the broadband they need for work, school, health care, and more. Whoa. Somebody was saying that they they were going to have to lose their internet by the end of the month. So this is uh this is to help you out. It's a legit program. It works. Please try it if you need it. Now people believe Derek Barn doesn't like at the drive-in. Barn hates at the drive-in. He was like, man, if you play those dirty El Paso bastards one more time around me, I will rip your face off through the monitor. He did not say that. The question is, does Varn like the Mars Volta? Please welcome criticizer of late 90s emo, Derek Varn. Hello, hello. <laughs> um, funny story, when I had a college radio show my uh, junior year, um, before I began torturing my audience by making them listen to Mersbal for an hour because I hate them, um, you can see a pattern uh, of engagement. The first song I ever played uh, on my show was One Arm Scissor. So um, that's what was playing. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was Run Arm Scissor, and then it was uh, uh, War Machine by Burning Airlines. Um, if you remember that Jay Robbins band. Oh, okay. Uh, so they quickly changed its name because 9/11 happened. Um, so uh, that's a flashback to 20 years ago. Someone says Mersbo rocks. MT out here running promo for Biden. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it was a program that actually started under Trump. It was like during COVID. Hey man, take advantage of it. Why are you even trying to test her like that? That's the question. <laughs> That's the thing about Donald Trump. He has like no real politics, so he just kind of did whatever he thought was the right thing to do at the time. Remember when he released those black women that had been in prison forever? Because Kim Kardashian let him, like not let him, but like asked him to. And he sent out stimmy checks. That's is that the president you want that where Kim Kardashian was like, Donald, hey Donnie. Celeb to celeb. I gotta talk to you. Celeb to celeb. (laughs) Donnie, I don't like what's going on over in the Middle East. Can you imagine if that's how things just got done with Donald Trump in office? We just we all had to butter up Kim Kardashian. Another person (laughs) that really doesn't have a political stance on anything really. Derek is not happy with that thought at all for some reason. (laughs) Oh no, I uh, Trump is a is an interesting figure. I just we're gonna get another round of uh, of uh, fascism into oh. American democracy talk, as if that meant anything oh, in the first fucking brother. Place. You're, you you already know. Uh, so the question that I had and MT and I were talking about a few weeks ago, when we decided to do this show is is the left's love affair with Bernie over? 
Uh, recently, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders voiced his support for Israel not having a ceasefire in their brutal bombing of the Palestinian people. The sound of leftist hearts breaking could be heard like an unified unity stone level blast or infinity stone level blast throughout the social media universe. Was this the final nail in the presidential hopeful coffin in Bernie Sanders? For some reason, people that feel shocked by the comments of Senator Sanders don't know much about his somewhat complicated relationship to Israel. He lived in a kibbutz for a time. He acknowledges Israel's right to exist and does, to a certain extent, begrudge their violence with Gaza, calling them reactionary. But is that enough? From a political article from 2015, at a town hall meeting in August 2014, Sanders was confronted by an angry constituent who demanded he oppose Israel's military campaign in Gaza, which had killed hundreds of civilians, while conceding that Israel had overreacted. Sanders focused mainly on Palestinian provoca provocation. Provocation? Provocation? You know what? I don't, I don't need you getting smart with me, buddy. <laughs> Pipe down, see Derek. Yeah. But, but <laughs> 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 this isn't funny. <laughs> you have a situation where I'm, I'm almost saying like I'm reading this and I hear Bernie Sanders talking. You have a situation. You have a situation where Hamas is sending missiles into Israel, and you know where some of these missiles are coming from. They're coming from populated areas. That's a fact. Declared. How do you feel about Bernie's comments? Do you need a political figure that embodies every aspect of your political project to be thought of, thought of as a legitimate candidate against the left and right flank of capital? Here to discuss with us is Derek Farn. Derek, you, like many other people that we're close with, understand Bernie Sanders' legacy with israel and yeah um there was only one person that i remember in the 2016 election that really spoke to it in a negative light and that's a person that doesn't get a lot of run in these circles which is chris hedges a lot of people think he's a bit mm -hmm. reactionary mainly because he's a man of faith that being said i do think there's some value in Hedges writing. Uh, actually, I think there's a lot of value in Hedges writing. I'll take that back. What do you think about what Bernie had to say? Were you shocked at all? And how do you feel about the reaction? Um, I mean, Bernie's calling for nuance and a call for a humanitarian pausing without uh, actual ceasefire is to be both expected um given his statements uh, around the silent intifada as you mentioned in 2014 2015 uh his general kind of wonkiness on uh military issues um he does tend to be the most progressive voice on military issues in congress but you know that doesn't mean much um so yeah, he, you you pulled me up here. I mean, one of the things uh, about the situation is, of course, I think Bernie's stance is uh, both predictable and ludicrous at the same time. Um, Israel's right to exist. 
to me, that debate is uh, beyond the scope of of what I'm willing to completely go into today. Um, but to 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 say it this way in the most simple form, the only kind of left wing position that I think you you should take um, is the uh, binational single state, uh, you know, as talked about by people like Martin Berber and uh, Noam Chomsky, um, or uh, you know, Jews should have gotten half of Germany. Um, but nonetheless, we live in the reality we live in. We're not going to undo that anytime real soon. And I think um, this issue hits home because a lot of people have really cared about the Israel-Palestine issue for a very long time. And it's one of the areas in which the left has had the least effect. Um, and what I say least effect, I mean least effect on actual politics. They've had a ton of effect actually on public opinion, but that's not really all that relevant for military issues in the United States after the Police Powers Act uh, and the treaty with the UN pretty much moved the ability to make war out of Congress into the presidency, which is why, by the way, you haven't heard a U.S. declare war on anything like in a official capacity, rhetorically declare war on shit all the time. We've been at war de facto pretty much almost every year since 19... Uh, 79 but um in legally um no we haven't been and that that move even though it was supposedly intended to curtail the ability of the executive under the rights that it signed up with when it signed into the UN which really moved war uh policing powers into the executive branch um that move has really removed public pressure on military action. You then also add to that fact that there is no draft anymore. Um, and people's stakes for wars in the United States is actually quite low. And when you add to that, a you know, a third thing that while you might feel that Israel is a proxy for, for, for U.S. policy interests, um, it, you are not getting more than a mild sanction even out of traditionally pro-Palestinian states um, because of the difficulty that Israel's arms complex, which everyone is, you know, all the major powers are tied into in this, quote, multipolar world, that word everybody likes to throw around so much, Um it makes it very difficult to see exactly what the the left can do um and every time i talk about palestinian israeli issues on your show or on my show which i don't do a whole lot because i refuse to profiteer off of it okay um i uh am am faced with this dire reality in which you know what i can tell people to actually do is very small so um 
it's absolutely true that since there's very little st- i mean it, it, what what's funny about this is there's very little likelihood that even if bernie did take the correct stance it would have any effect on democrat on the democratic party's uh backing of, of biden's you know um support of this this war it, there's just very little evidence that it would actually do that much but it would have a morale effect which means that him not taking it in some and in some ways is 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 worse because he's going to be, you know, he's going to be seen as insufficiently hawkish anyway by most of the Democratic Party, and thus we must actually assume this is his real personal opinion. Um, I think this this. This in particular kind of wakes people up to the Bernie conundrum. But, you know, when you asked me to come on here, I, I have been a Bernie skeptic fuck all my life. Like, um, you know, I used to share a piece written by, I mean, admittedly written by uh, an anarchist, but uh, about Bernie that's from 1986, you know. Um, so... I've always been kind of a Bernie skeptic. My support of Bernie Sanders in 2020, uh, and I, I did I did vote for him. I actually registered to be a fucking Democrat in the primary for one of the few times in my life that I. I did that. Ooh. I did that too. Yeah. Um. Anyway, um, the reason why I supported it was was to see, you know, to try to give a working oriented left a win, but I never thought it was sufficient. And frankly, what I was afraid of uh, was that if Bernie had actually gotten the nomination, we'd be in a similar situation to Corbyn. Now, I still think Bernie probably would have won 2020 if he was up against Trump, given that I don't think Biden won it because of Biden's agreed. uh, His his chutzpah, his personality, his charisma. Right. Um, Look here, Jack. Don't you dare talk about Joe Biden. <laughs> um, but it's it, it was always a, a situation where even if Bernie had the best position on everything, um, the the organic grassroots response that led to 2016, which made everyone feel valorized, had not done and did not do the work to change the democratic party and i don't know that it could have in four years and that is something that i don't think anyone wanted to hear and in fact um not to you know to bring up everyone's favorite dead person michael brooks and a friend of mine but i was disinvited from his show for saying that in 2019 that we had not done enough to change the nature of american electoral politics for for Bernie Sanders to really be effective, um, even if he had gotten the nomination, there, there were people in my. Well, well hold on, hold on, Jason. Uh, now you're disinvited. <laughs> I'm sorry, Derek. I just had to say that. <laughs> Because the way you did it, I could feel your hand for some reason. Like, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> Hold on, you Jason. Let me get this joke off. <laughs> Timing's too good. Um, 
in my people in my political sphere in in the bay area there's there's a handful of us in bands and stuff that actually were real deal leftists and that was a legitimate conversation that let's just say your dream of of bernie sanders in office happens what's going to get done and do both parties form a united front against anything getting done and just make him a huge do-nothing president I, I think you, you could very much have a situation like you had with Corbyn um, in the UK. Corbyn got a lot farther than Bernie. Um, got sabotaged internally to his own party, though, because he did not change his party's apparatus. And in fact, he came to power despite having a lot of popular momentum behind him because his pop, because his party's internal apparatus had no backbench after the Blairite days. Very similar to what we see in the Democrats right now. There's no backbench after Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's the Democrats are basically run by you know uh, people who make who make the Brezhnev Politburo look very spry. <laughs> and, um, and because of that, I mean, and, and to be fair, this is a trend all over the world right now. This is not just in the United States, but um, it, it's, it, I knew that we were kind of fucked when I was seeing uh, uh, Bronco Marchevic. Marchevic. And, yeah, that guy. Yesterday's um, man. And yeah. And uh and uh friend of the show Ben Burgess having to trot out, you know, Bernie twenty twenty four signs. And I'm like, well, you literally this is an ad an admission that that this social democratic or democratic socialist if if the word order really matters to you, then mm-hmm. then take what you will. Mm-hmm. Um uh uh, that it had failed completely. Um, I remember in 2019, a lot of people saying after Bernie, then AOC. And I remember just going, I want you to study what happened to Nancy Pelosi in the 1980s. You can't, people don't like to think about history because our 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 spans for time. You want to read the super chat real quick? Two cents? Sure. This is from Ken. Uh, my chief complaint with Bernie was that he didn't do enough to build state apparatus. I mean, there wasn't really enough done to build any sort of grassroots movement outside of, you know, movements for campaigns. That's really what that failure of 2016 becomes. I mean, you get some people. Mm-hmm. In office. You know, I talked about this with Derek Varn. Was it late last year or early this year? We had a really good conversation for like three hours. Granted, a couple hours of it is about music. But... A lot of it was about our political predictions for 2024, which there are people that actually were, have worked inside politics that have hit me up recently and said, I think you might be right <laughs> about what you were saying about Gavin Newsom and possibly Ron DeSantis you know, running, um, depending on what happens to Donald Trump and you know, Joe Biden's mental state is not very good at all. But one thing that I found fascinating about Bernie Sanders was he comes along in a moment where the hero is is going to the sunset on Obama. And however you feel about Obama now wasn't necessarily how a lot of people felt about Obama at the end. And he was perfect to fill that role 
for a lot of people. And Bernie Sanders is saying words, making things popular that hadn't been popular in my lifetime. Saying you are a socialist was not popular in my lifetime. We have to keep in mind how small the DSA was, and it's still extremely small today. But what was it, under 10,000 people before Bernie Sanders comes into, uh, comes on the scene, Derek Warren? Oh, uh, before Bernie Sanders comes on the scene, it was about 10,000 people before uh, Bashkar Sansara comes on the scene. It had been a fairly well-established um, political machine in the New York State area, particularly in the 1980s. But uh, from that establishment, um, I mean, and to remind people, uh, the DSA in the 1980s got a mayor elected. Uh, so just it, it was not insignificant regionally in New York um, in, in the 80s. But that 5,000 people pretty much is where it stayed mm-hmm. for almost 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, after Occupy, it doubled in size to about 10,000. Um, uh, between uh, looking at the numbers between Bernie 1 and Bernie 2, uh, the DSA grew between to uh, about 30,000 and then to about, you know, they say 100K. The actual numbers that they released um, actually indicates they got to about 90 paper members, mm-hmm. 90,000 paper Watching members. Dues paying members. Yeah, um, but they've been declining in membership pretty steadily in, in spurts and starts for the past two years. Um, and it's hard to get a good feeling because it takes almost a full year to get off the DSA's rolls. So uh, the re- I don't want to make this a referendum on the DSA. Right now the DSA is moving in a different direction. But the 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 fundamental truth of the matter is that the DSA was wedded to a very old apparatus. It also had problems. The reason, uh, like whole kinds of ad hoc things have emerged to kind of semi address this within DSA too, such as the caucus system, which are basically little sectlets, but they also act as regional organizers for how the MPC works, et cetera. Uh, And the reason why they do that is because the DSA really wasn't designed to handle the kind of size that it currently has um and uh it doesn't really have regional apparatuses it's a city by city and then national organization with some depending on the state some states have state level and regional level orgs but not all of them it's 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 always been kind of a uh a, a bit of swiss cheese i bring that up because you want a state apparatus and you want a grassroots apparatus Well, you didn't build either one of them other than the primitive accumulation of cadres. Mm. All you got was people on paper. Mm. Um, and, and then you got people to canvas and then you got people to do maybe some local organization, some good stuff uh, that, that basically was a non NGO form of parapolitical charity. Um, and the reality of that situation has, is going to hit people in about 10 years. It's already hitting people. That's why you've seen all these kind of new internet ideologies proliferate like crazy because people are responding to this failure. What, what internet now, ideologies are you speaking of? 
Talk I mean, like just the uh, MAGA communism and stuff like that. Yeah, all that shit, which which is just like you saw the resurgence of a bunch of weird left communisms that have faded from existence after, after oh, 20. Oh, LaRoucheites and stuff like yeah. that? Yeah, well, no. I mean, I'm also talking about Bordigas. There's these attempt to go back to the past or to combine two new ideologies with no actual real base where you can get people through particular streamer engagement and make people feel like they're doing something because the DSA for a lot of people has been a negative experience. I mean, like you just, you see this now to get back to um, Bernie Sanders. Cause I think this is, you know, this Israel thing really makes this clear. Bernie Sanders is still a creature of his party. He might be a part of the the most left flank of it. I mean, Rashida Tlaib is clearly more left than him, but we see what Congress has done to her. Um, what, you know, one of the 29 people in the history of 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 the United States to be censured. In in the um, article that, and that's an old article from 2015. In the article, uh, literally, I don't know if people remember. Because again, no one likes to talk about Bernie Sanders. I don't even hear too, too many people talk about 2014 what was going on in Israel. But one of the things that they say in the article was that Sanders was critical of support for arming uh, Iran, or not arming Iran, but going to war with Iran. And the whole thing Clinton was saying was Iran is kind of a sworn enemy to Israel, and if you're not willing to to be about war with Iran, then are you really that serious of an ally to Israel? And consultants that were, you know, interviewed in the piece were like, mm, he's got a very center left position on Israel, which is fine. And it's not the kind of position that would cost you a campaign. And ultimately, I find this fascinating because his his stance on Israel was very well known. And all these people that are so politically aware and love Bernie Sanders and everybody couldn't wait to campaign for him and and cried so many tears in 2016 and 2020, it was almost like you heard collective hearts break when he talks about not wanting a ceasefire because Hamas is, quote-unquote, bad dudes. And it's like me and Toussaint heard it, and first thing Toussaint says, she goes, well, that's who he is. Why did, before before you answer this question of who he is, we have a call, and we should get to this call because it, it is close to me mm-hmm. right here. <laughs> um, Tucson, you want to do your thing? Sure. Mm-hmm. Calling from an eight four three area code. Where are you calling from? What's your name? You know who this is. Oh, I don't need him that right. Damn it! <laughs> Straw McCallum. I was about to say. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, Strom. Hey, I'll just uh, put my thoughts uh, succinctly. Um, entryism, that's a dead end. Uh, popular and united frontism, that's a dead end. Um, wokery, that's a dead end. And accommodation of socially reactionary dog shit, that's a dead end. <laughs> you tell me how you really feel. Yeah. So did you you didn't feel that Bernie Sanders That's was always my, a dead end? Did you feel that Bernie Sanders was always a dead end, Strom? Um, as soon as I arrived at socialism, yeah, like from 2017 on, 
back when I was a lib, yeah, I thought he might have have some good shit going on, but no. Um, I rejected him and AOC and all of them right out of the uh, gate. You reject uh, Ilhan Omar? Yeah. Rashida Tlaib. You can't do anything inside the Democratic Party, the demon rap party, that is, the the, the uh, Republican, Democrat, whatever you want to say. <laughs> if the institution that. is not fundamentally committed to, openly committed to uh, expropriation of capital and the realization of a new mode of production, I am backing it. You can't be coy about this shit either. I mean, it just, Sorry. Same with the Greens. You hate the Green Party as well? Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you think they're all well-to-do white liberals? Um, no. But at the same time, you have to be committed to the project. There's one litmus test. Are you committed to the realization of socialism through majoritarian means or not? Derek Varn, what say you? About what exactly? I mean, I will walk to Utah. I'm not these poop butt people on the screen you be yelling at. (laughs) No, uh, but uh, what's strong? Walking walking to Utah would uh, be an interesting predicament for you. Um, (laughs) The I didn't catch that. Everybody other than Jason is mixed down to nothing. Oh, it's it's racism, Strong. Well, look, we'll have to take your we'll have to take Derek's answer to your to your uh, comment off air. Thank you so much for the call, Strong. Sounds good. All right, let's. Uh... So, what do you say to Strom's complaint about Sanders? Are you as uh, vehemently against Sanders as Strom? I'm not a popular, I'm not a popular frontist, and I never have been. I don't know um, uh, what the rejection of the United Front. That's uh, that's a pretty strong position, uh, generally considered a left communist position. Um, uh, that's well to the left of, uh, uh, like, say, historically what the Bolsheviks um, maintained. Uh, but the, the question becomes like uh, to speak to Strom's uh, frustrations, and I think they're very real. Um, it's hard to understand how to apply strategies that were developed in the in the second and third international to a non-parliamentary system, because, for example, the the United Front strategy was also based on the idea that a socialist party would not actually form a coalition government um, with a bourgeois party. Well, that's not even possible in the United States in the first place. There are no coalition governments. We don't have that. Um, uh, in fact, you know, we don't necessarily have a continuity of um, head of government and and, uh, legislative head, Uh, and we don't have a separation between head of government and head of state like most European governments do either. So a lot of these strategies are built for and are basically based off of European assumptions. And 
Um, we try to make them work as best we can in the United States, which is probably why the Popular Front is disastrous, as I think it's, it's been going all the way back to the populists liquidating themselves into the Democrats in the 1890s, um, uh, has, has been for, for, the, for the U.S. Um, left. I think there's a lot of people who listen to this who are popular frontists deep in their soul. Some of them are even my friends. And I think that um, they are that they may actually get some people who become leaders in in the Democratic Party from this uh, only for them to become the kind of person that Nancy Pelosi is later on. And I want to remind people when when AOC actually correctly said way back in the day when she was not opposing um, Nancy Pelosi as leadership for the leadership of um, the House Democrats. That there was nobody who was a viable candidate to the left of Pelosi. She was right. All right. That is not, however, a defense of Pelosi. That is that just tells you where we actually have been and what people have not been looking at in the structure of these parties. I was recently reading a Hal Draper article from 1967. Uh, called Who's Going to Be the Lesser Evilism in 1968. And you know what was really fascinating about it is uh, it, it brought out the Hitler-Hindenburg uh, argument, the classical example of lesser evilism, which is actually correct. Hindenburg was the lesser evil between, between um, Hitler and, you know, and the reactionary kind of reactionary conservative movement. Uh, However, since the Social Democrats decided to support Hindenburg, they got liquidated because Hindenburg, uh, you know, thought he, that he could control the Nazis by giving them responsibility and power. Well, and we all see how that worked out. Now, Draper goes through that history. That's where the original lesser evilism argument really comes from, by the way, from the socialist left. It was the Social Democrats um, supporting a conservative government to stop the fascists, uh, while the communists... Um, at least the the, uh, the the Communist Party of Dustland at the time was um, calling the, so, the the Social Democrats fascists and saying after Hitler us. Both things are true. All right. Now let's, let's fast forward ahead to to um, the liquidation of the Popular Front and Henry Wallace, where Wallace gets sidelined. Um, by people who, some of whom were formerly Marxist. I mean, you got to look like Reinhold Niebuhr, as everyone always remembers as kind of the pessimistic Christian liberal realist, was a Marxist in the 1930s. Um, so what you see with these people is they actually kind of stab the popular front in the back, uh, throw Henley, you know, kind of more or less throw Henley Wallace out of the, out of the Democratic Party, support Truman, and then build up the apparatus that allows for the Red Scare to happen because there were communists in the coalition with Henley Wallace, and many of the communists were hiding their position in the labor, in the labor unions because they were afraid of a backlash, which then was used against them in the late 1940s, first on a state level, we forget this, there was state by state Red scares before any before anything happened with um, jo Joseph McCarthy. That was a long half a decade's project before we even got to the 1950s. And the Democrats were were by and large okay with it as soon as the war was over. Um, now I, I bring this up because one of the things that Hal Draper brings up in his discussion about um, 
Johnson, and he he was talking about the the a lot of the left supporting Lyndon Johnson in 1964 against Goldwater, um, and people being shocked that in many ways Johnson took a more aggressive stance towards Vietnam uh, than Goldwater's formal positions were. Now we don't know what Goldwater would have done, all right. Um, but uh, we do know what Lyndon Johnson did. And so Draper's point wasn't that that, that Goldwater and, and Johnson were the same. In fact, he says that is a liberal uh, confusion, uh, you know, argument that, that it, it makes it about the hearts and minds of these individuals, all right? Um, Draper says, no, we should assume that these liberals really are as liberal as they say they were. However, the structural apparatus that they operate under, and he uses the example of Brown in California versus Reagan, and how much of stuff that we attribute to Reagan in California were actually done under Brown, under Pat Brown. Yeah, say the father um, talking about. Yep. Um, that... Uh, and by the way, like it... it like the new the fact that the Democratic Party looks to New York and California as our basis for the future should scare the shit out of people because uh, I can't think of a more moribund, um, more I mean, uh, Cal- California like, gives you Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon, right? Right, but, but it also gives you like Democratic legacy admissions. Um, <laughs> you know how many times has, how many times has a Brown been governor of California? Well, his father and the son and the son twice, right? And the son, you know, once in the seven in the what in the eighties or in the late seventies, and once again, yeah, two thousands, two thousands, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jerry Brown, uh, Jerry Brown just keeps on coming back. He wasn't very good when he came back the the second time. I believe the first time or was during his father. There was actually way more control over things like PG and E. The uh, power and gas company that regulates the majority of the state, not not all of it. Um, there was more regulation over them. By the time he comes back, that regulation is definitely lifted. That's one thing. I mean, we can get into a real deep conversation if you want to about the inner workings of, of California politics during Reagan's time, before he's he's even even governor. And there really is a New Deal coalition of Democrats and a coalition of Republicans that are trying to repeal a lot of the New Deal programs, and they're trying to do it from the state level in places like California. So the war on welfare, really, you could say, and and even healthcare, a lot of that stuff starts for me when I when I was doing my research on my uh, we don't need another hero uh, uh, video essay, like the '60s. There was there's some great academic articles on fights that were happening in California state legislature. Um, about you know yeah. certain social programs, and and that was Reagan's big victory, and the victory lap that he runs when he's out of office after he loses that nomination in '76, is to go on TV everywhere, which he could do at the time because he was still a star and he was governor of California, uh, which is say, well, hey, when I was in office, one thing I was able to do is cut welfare. And he was going on things like Johnny Carson and saying that. And Johnny Carson was probably had like, what, 40, 50 million eyeballs a night. You yeah. Know, say what you want about any of your favorite streamer podcast guy. They weren't getting 40, 50 eyeballs glued to them a night like that or 100 million. So, you know, Reagan was on a campaign like no other 
So by the time he runs for office in, in 80, it, to me, it's kind of a no brainer. But, you know, California politics is, is definitely. Uh, it was interesting because Democrats are trying to protect their New Deal coalition um, while Republicans, the Goldwater Republicans especially, are coming in and like, no, we have to do away with this. This is a problem. I mean, remember that uh, Medicaid but, originally was going to be different and Medicare was going to look different, but there was a, you know, kind of a concession made because of Goldwater's campaign. Draper, Draper makes a point, however, that most of the, quote, neoliberalization actually in California actually begins in a Pat Brown towards the end of his, his career. Um, and it's picked up by Reagan and accelerated by Reagan, but it starts under Pat Brown. And that's that to me is a is a hint for what's going to happen in the 1970s with neoliberalism really starting in the second half of the of the brief Carter administration and being picked up and accelerated by Reagan. But uh, what Draper's point is in regards to the structural incentives here, and this is to tie this back into to Bernie. I mean, I, you know, we're talking about 60s California politics, but also about presidential politics and about the lesser evilism argument, because one of the things that Draper makes very clear, and, you know, he was he was politically active from the late 30s until the 80s. So it's it, he, he knows he knows this history firsthand um, is that. Lesser evil arguments really start emerging in the second half of the FDR administration and communists are, are really, you know, uh, they don't know how to deal with it. Um, and one of the things that Draper kind of predicts, interestingly, is that uh, what was seen at the time by communists as an initial defeat and then having the popular front as a concession to reality to rebuild would later on by later American socialists be celebrated as a victory for, for socialism in America, even though the New Deal was not really a socialist program by most means and most definitions. Um, and I think that uh, uh, is a real problem when you have this thing like with, with Bernie Sanders ba basically trying to sell that view uh, with some Marxism, some Richard Wolfstall Marxism, some MMT, a bunch of incoherent basket policies, frankly, um, to American socialists as an answer. But before you've done the kind of building to build out and have something to hold these accountable, uh, candidates accountable, because the one thing I'm going to say is structurally speaking, this is Draper's point, the... The, if the left is captured because of fear of the right, what that means is the right is who the Democratic center has to appeal to to maintain their coalition. The left is a given. And that was obvious as early as Truman. Mm. Um, which means that we have been engaging in the same failed strategy for four generations. And we just – you talk about people actively ignoring the history with Bernie. Well, they're actively ignoring the history of this, you know, going back. In fact, if it, 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 my research recently has said this goes all the way back to the 1890s when the populists tried to do a joint bid with, with the, to, to overthrow the Bourbon Democrats, the very conservative post-Confederate Democrats in the Democratic Party in the late 19th century uh, with, with William Jennings Bryant. And what that led to – kind of and there's it's complicated because there's other factors that go into it such as uh the sharecropper class base 
of of the populist party like just starting to not exist and not being economically viable anymore but the other thing that happens is they basically liquidate themselves into the democratic party and it goes nowhere like the populist movement basically dies uh the labor movement um which was attached to it has to separate itself and then they begin forming the you know the debsian socialist party really after that fact uh but again um when the socialist uh and the communists liquidate into the democratic party it, it um and which really doesn't happen until the popular front but what happens is you get this initial boost of membership and in, in the beginning it seems like they're just building 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 and by 1948 there's like 60,000 people in the American Communist Party and not uh, uh 19 yeah by 1948 there seems like there's 60,000 people in the American Communist Party right um by 1955 between the red scare and people being disenchanted and and a tons of stuff that happens uh uh, you see, you see that membership collapse, like very quickly. Um, and so, in the United States, it seems like there's this, there's this feeling of momentum when we join up with the Democrats because you have all these people, and particularly in opposition to a right wing leader. All mm -hmm. right, uh, be it Reagan, be it Goldwater, be it Donald Trump, be it George Bush, and we've seen this over and over and over again just like people say well this is the most important election i've heard this now all my life all right there were people making reagan hitler analogies in 1967. um so it's it's such a trident it predates the new left that's the thing it predates the new left we can't blame the new left for this it was already an established pattern by the 60s all right. So when it comes to Bernie Sanders, my question to everybody is, what did you think you were doing that was going to make it different? Well, most people just didn't know this history. And one of the things about the U.S. left is the U.S. left is also is often obsessed with European history. It finds American history and Amer the history of the American left quite boring. Um, but because of that, it doesn't know that we've done this shit over and over again and failed. Well, hold on one second, Derek Vaughn. We have a few phone calls. We also have a super chat. Let me just. Oh, just get the super chat, right? This is another one from Ken. Thank is the Ken. Democratic Party making a bet that socialists will not choose the path of accelerationism? Yeah. I don't know what accelerationism is. You know, vote for vote for Trump, and you get socialism because everything goes to shit, and people want to want to. Yeah, uh, that's basically a, a rehash of third periodism. I just want to remind you that didn't go well for you either. Um, um, shout out to Ken. Thank you for the super chats. I mean, this show, as much as we'd like it to exist on goodwill and hand claps, uh, the super chats go a long way in us being able to keep the literal lights on. Now, Tucson, you want to push a call through? Yes. All right. Calling from a 251 area code. Caller, what's your name? Where are you calling from? What's on your mind? Uh, yeah, my bad. Oh, yeah. This is uh, Chaka Black in chat, but uh, JB in real life, I suppose. But, yeah, I was calling because I was thinking about um, the sort of, uh, like, pathological politics that tends to go on 
uh, overall where people tend to vote against an enemy instead of, uh, instead of, uh, you know, actually for any sort of candidate. Uh, I guess I've been touching up on that, but I end up thinking that it ends up getting us into this trap. Um, and especially, and I, I know that there's a, there's sort of a, I don't know if you consider it conspiratorial, but I mean, Nancy Pelosi said it herself that, you know, that, uh, the Democratic Party would love to have a strong Republican Party. And yet I tell that to people and they, uh, they just, uh, yeah, they, they're flabbergasted by that idea. And I think on some of, I know Jacobin has floated that idea or that concept in the past that the ways in which the Democratic Party and the Republican Party work hand in hand. I, and I suspect I have heard, um, I have heard Chank Uger and Hassan Piker sort of floating that idea. Hassan Piker a little bit more hush hush about it, um, but yeah, I've, I've been hearing that lately. But um, yeah. Well, thank you for your call, call, and uh, we will take your. Derek's going to respond to you uh, right now. Thank you very much. Thank you, JB. Yeah. Derek Vaughn, you want to you want to give your quick answer to that, or you not an answer but very, response to that? Very quickly, Democrats and Republicans, as you will see in most uh, parliamentary and congressional democracies around the world, manage a similar set of let's say liberal capitalist apparatuses, and because of that, they're mutually constitutive. They need each other. Uh, they they actually create the sphere of of uh, options, not just to like fool the working class. That conspiracy part of it's not just true. It's also that like they're managing different elements of of uh, you know elites and capital itself, and there are divisions within capitalists that have to be dealt with. And so if there is not a strong you know party to represent those interests stuff starts getting very muddled um this was an active uh the ideological sorting of the parties to kind of reinforce each other was act was actively encouraged in the late 1960s that is not a conspiracy it's pretty well documented um you'll even hear like dnc democrats kind of admit it so it, that you, you don't have to think of it conspiratorially to see that, that it's, it is kind of necessary for these kinds of politics to work. And it's not unique to the U.S. either. You see this in Europe all the time and kind of, you know, mild reforms to election systems don't really fix it. So like first, pa you know, trying to fix first pass to post voting does make things a little bit better. Um, and you might have some, you know, far, far more progressive, you know, former social democratic uh, groups emerge. But um, it's it's not going to it doesn't fundamentally change the political, you know, the political calculus of these countries. And they still kind of go along with where national investment, international investment goes, not just national. All right. That's my short. <laughs> we have a super chat on the screen. Thank you very much. Devoid reality says it's been too long. It has been too long. And welcome back. There's, there's quite a few people watching. Definitely people from uh, Varnes side of the political universe uh, maybe some old school tir people that haven't been around for a while thank you guys for coming back i hope you guys come back next week because we will be doing 
another call-in show on Thanksgiving. Nobody loves me, so I'll be here for Thanksgiving. Arn <laughs> doesn't want me in Utah. You know You're welcome oh, to come. Just I wouldn't advise walking. <laughs> <laughs> if I start like, now, maybe I'll get there by Thanksgiving. I mean, you got to walk through like three deserts between where you are and where I yes. am. Like, <laughs> yes. Uh, we'll 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 save all funny stories about driving to your hood, you know, for the champagne room. This is our final caller for the day, and this is going to be a good one for Derek Varn. This is Derek Varn's arch enemy. Oh. Are you ready? Call me, from, call me from the 414 area code. Caller, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Uh, Dave calling from uh, Milwaukee. What's up, Barn? What's up, uh, Jason? How y'all doing? Uh-oh. David, Watch out. This, this Barnes, it's Barnes swan enemy. If it isn't my swan enemy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, man, yeah. <laughs> We're gonna, have a, we're gonna have a high school teacher cage match. Watch out! Um, yeah, just get Kenzo up in here, we'll all, you know. Yeah, get Kenzo. Um, <laughs> What's on your mind, Dave? The uh, so well, yeah. So first off, man, I just wanted to say it was really cool hearing you guys talk about um, horror movies, um, and which I think are a lot more politically relevant than people understand um so that was awesome um and then secondly i just wanted to kind of talk about the uh, popular front um i uh people don't often talk about the more conservative angle of that which um you know uh letting the guys like john dos patos um and then of course you know people like james burnham too um but like somebody like dos patos you know who i think authentically believe in um uh you know autonomy for workers, right? He went in a more conservative direction and um, started, you know, support Nixon and this kind of thing. And I do know a lot of communists started uh, support Nixon as well because of um, his peace uh, of China. Um, he also allowed uh, guys like uh, Rob Williams um, back in the United States, um, you know, who was in exile, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, of, uh, Robert F. Williams from down North Carolina, um, great militant. Um, you know, civil rights leader. Um, so there were, you know, real reasons to kind of take that approach against the liberals um, who were, you know, died in the wool anti-communists uh, and really enemies of the left, right? So I, I think that when people understand that, that they'll understand why, that, like a lot of stuff from Obama and Sanders, um, these are not instances of like betrayal, right? They really, if somebody is running as a de Democrat, um, and they, they should understand, and allowed within that Democratic coalition, that they should be understood as being political enemies to working people and to the left more broadly, if the left is still aligned with working people. Um, but uh, which, which I have questions about. Um, but, uh, you know, that's like the main thing I see. Um, the, the other thing, Byron, you can you can tell me if you agree with this. But I noticed that a lot of the people who are kind of pushing this line on um, lesser evilism often do so because they understand they, they they look at the president as being the sole like they have a bonapartist understanding of the president, right? They see that as like the sole authority that 
um, that governs uh, the direction of the United States foreign policy and domestic policy. Um, but uh, I, 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 I look at it, I look at that as you know being incorrect, um, largely because you know, you know, I do believe that when working people are organized, we have a lot more power than anybody, um, at least within this country. Um, and uh, you know, the other thing is people people need to think about what's best for us and like what's best in our interests, right? Um, and I will say that some of those policies that are disastrous, kind of like. I uh, the time that 2020 and the uh, fourth quarter downturn in 2019 came around, but those that tight labor market that produced that some of those policies produced was very good for working people. Um, so people have to recognize that and take advantage of that stuff, as opposed to like constantly like you know battering down the conservatives. You know, this doesn't mean that you go you know do this like Jackson Hinkle route, but um, I think people just have to learn more from the conditions on the ground and respond to them better. David, thank you yeah. so much for your phone call, brother. Yeah, thank you. Great talking. Thank you for your support, man. Thanks. Yeah, of course, man, always, every day. Peace, brother. Peace, brother. I was just... People will be... Go ahead. Way. That is not... Barn, barn. Yeah. We're, we are not enemies. David is actually a really... I think he's a solid dude. Oh, dude, David... David and I disagree often. Um, uh, he tends to think I'm too pessimistic and maybe slightly ultra lefty. But uh, um, everything he said, I actually agree with him. My, like today, today I actually like am totally in, in agreement with David uh, in the sense that I don't think Bernie Sanders betrayed us. I don't think I think that's the wrong way to think about these candidates, period. Yes. Like. Like they, we should never trust them ever, regardless of whether you're, you, you, you're in a popular front or united front or refuse to deal with them, whatever your job has to be to treat these people, um, in some ways as instruments that you can only hold a cannibal. And what, what I wanted to pick up on, on, on David's point. Right now, uh, he's right that the, the the Trump era fuck ups actually have really empowered the labor uh, the labor market in ways that even Jerome Powell couldn't undo. Like they try real hard, and they are saddling us with debt. All right, but they've tried really hard to weaken the job market. But frankly, they still have to get shit done. They can't if they actually destroy the job market, they would crash you know, the capitalist into the economy too. Um, so, I mean, cause we, you know, if people aren't working, shit doesn't happen. Um, and so that's why you're seeing all this labor stuff really culminate. And I want to give David credit because uh, David told me to um, kind of look at the long durée when we were talking about the resurgence of labor last time. Cause I was like, well, we're not seeing a lot of institutional uh, success you know, last year. In fact, that was our last big on-air fight. And I, I stand by the fact we weren't. But you know what? That militancy has led to something. Now, it has complicated downstream effects that we have to look at. Like, uh, and by that, I'm talking about the UAW. And, you know, to give Sanders credit today, he, you know, I guess he uh, kind of stood up for, you know, a UAW leader against uh, a, a petite bourgeois Oklahoman yoke, uh, uh, 
I don't want to say Yokel because that's not a fence on the good name of Yokels. Um, uh, you know, um, hyper masculinist jackass challenging uh, a labor leader to a fight in Congress uh, in Congress today. But in, in a real sense, we would have to have built up a lot more of our own institutions and not just electoral ones. That's been the problem. We've only been focusing on the sexy end of elections, mm. which is national. That's the result of of media. I've told people, you know, it, if I wanted to do a media campaign for a local politician in the 1990s, I could do it through a zine and have more effect today, even though I only had like, you know, 500 readers of my zine, than I will with an audience of, you know, I have an audience of, you know, between uh, on on an audio episode, my YouTube, because I don't monetize it, isn't huge, but on an audio episode, I might have an audience of 2,000, 3,000 people per episode in a month, right? But, and that could, that could matter in a local media market, but it's diffused through the entire planet. Yep. Yeah. And so, like, you know, someone asked me, why don't you do local organizing stuff through your show? Well, it wouldn't help what I do locally at all. Like, it's not even practical. And in that reality, this is what I want people to, like, get through. You should use these shows to learn about national and international politics, but you should also be, like, not expecting us to give you how to build an organization in your area because you know how you build an organization in your area is to know your area. But that's the thing, though. Really that's kind it. of my point, my end point for this whole discussion, mm-hmm. is that there's something to be said about this moment where – we're so kind of tuned into the internet to give us all the answers, right? I can't figure out how to work this thing. I don't know how to put in a, a filter in my oil filter. I'm just going to go to YouTube. So there, I mean, there's something to be said about the internet giving you the answers. And I know people say, well, polit- politics is different. It's like, no, it's not, because everyone has a 20-minute video. You want to understand uh, Baby Doc in Haiti? I watched a 20-minute video that gives you the entire regime, including his son, in 20 minutes. Do you really understand Baby Doc in Haiti? Do you really understand the atrocities? Do you really understand how he comes to power? Uh, no, not really, but you know he's a bad dude. So, yeah, people are, are real connected with the Internet. I mean, what, what, did, what did we get? We said this on that show so many months ago, Varn. What did we get after Bernie Sanders of 2016? We got AOC, and we got a proliferation of, of young people that felt the only way they could get politically active was through the the media they're knocking on doors but they're definitely spending quite a bit of time making really cool videos to go viral that's what aoc did yeah i mean and i I, i'll see people who like are you know defending what you go pick and this is not to call anyone out but who have like kind of weird niche politics with like you know seventy-five thousand. yeah you know, uh, views a video and I'm like, great, but, uh, have it, has it affected anything? Is there like a Yugoslav style, uh, socialist party in the United States? Is anyone really trying to resurrect Titoism on the ground in my union? And the answer is no. Whereas the UAW stuff. And you know, I got my strong critiques of the UAW, but they've been doing this for 20 years, and this is what we, 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 we have now. Now, there's a lot of stuff we have to deal with. Like the auto industry, for example, is very petite bourgeoisified. 
Um, by that, I don't mean that it's actually full of petite bourgeois people, but the way they get paid is, and it's been to keep the other ends of the auto industry from unionizing, like auto techs, downstream salespeople, stuff like that. Um, and the UAW hasn't been able to address that, but at least we now have a, you know, real strategic victory, a real strategic change that was not dependent on, you know, and, and this to me is chastising some people who are socialist, even in the DSA, like, like, uh, Eric Blanc, whose work I, I kind of like, but he's been way too like, well, we have to let Biden really reform the, the NCLRB and we'll get this. And, and I'm like, like, you know, the, you wrote Red State Revolt. You should understand how this works at this point. Um, we that isn't going to work. We have to like we can't rely on people that we should never fucking trust. All right. If you trust Joe Biden to be anything other than a flibbity jigit in the wind, you don't know the history of Joe Biden. Like oh, he's been on all sides of every issue except for Israel. So many um, digit is uh, what Varn calls his penis. Um, but you know, so this idea that, that that we keep on getting wedded to that that we need, you know, reforms. Uh, David made a thing in the comments. And this will be my last thing. Um, I'm not wedded to one form of organization, be party, council, whatever you want to talk about. Like we can go about. There's a bunch of them, and I think we have to use all of them. But political parties historically were not primarily outside of the United States. Actually, the United States complicates this, but we're not even primarily just about elections. Yes, they ran elections, but like most of what, say, the SPD did uh, before, say, the Weimar Republic, for example, was stuff outside uh, supporting unionization efforts, battling the fucking government, denying them uh denying the prussian government you know tax revenue that's the kind of stuff they did that's why they got arrested so much like it wasn't just to get feet on the ground to you know to uh even get legislative reforms much less control of the executive um and also in europe those are not as separate as they are in the united states um we we have to remember those other functions of the party, including, like, if we talk on that show, the social functions. We have to give people something, right? We have to fill in these parts. That we have to give them something other than some political identity, which they can put on a fucking Facebook profile. I guess that's. But, that's, I'm but old again, now, that's but that's that's my. But that's my point, right? It's like people are. We're so branded at this point. That's kind of the only way we see interacting with the world and making change. And I don't mean we as in the people on the screen. I mean kind of the whole of society, especially this younger generation. The only way I'm going to make an impact in the dying world is to turn my brain into a thing that's so large that it can make an impact. I'm going to do good right. by doing good. And th th there's something to be said about, well, looks like running for office is really popular, so I'll run for office. Like not a lot of people ran again. That that ran in the in the wake of you know 2018 and, and 2020 with uh with the rise of, of AOC and the squad. But look, we've gone on for over an hour. If you guys would like to continue hanging out with us, continue this conversation. We'll be in the champagne room for not a lot of time. Derek doesn't have a lot of time. Toussaint doesn't have a lot of time. We'll be there for a limited time only. Tomorrow I'll be back interviewing 
Record producer Tom Worman. He produced some of my favorite records. You know what records he produced for him? Shout at the Devil. Fair Warning by Van Halen, my favorite Van Halen record. He produced all those Blue Oyster Cult hits. He produced Dokken, all their stuff in the 80s. He did Poison's second record and a bunch of other stuff. And I'm going to be interviewing him. You don't seem excited. That's his excited face. That's his excited face? Yeah. I showed teeth. <laughs> <laughs> I usually only show teeth as an act of aggression. <laughs> <for Johnny>. <laughs> <laughs> that is the show tomorrow. And Thursday, we'll be talking with uh, Michael Harris again. So that'll be a lot of fun about his new book, Come With Me If You Want to Live, using science fiction to explain to us the world that we live in currently, not the future. It's a really good book. I read the manuscript two years ago, and now it's finally published to the academic publisher. I think I sent it to you, didn't I, Derek? Mm-hmm. So I'm excited he finally got it out, and we're going to be talking about that. So thank you, guys. If you are not a patron, patreon.com slash bitterlakepresents. $3 gets you in the room. If you haven't done it, there's a link in the description to get this. I'll be sending the PDF of this out. I only have like 10 copies of this. I'll be sending these to the people in the acknowledgments, i.e. Varn, Toussaint, Robert, Baje, Koobs. Love you guys. Thank you for all the super chats to keep the show on the air. Thank you, everybody watching on Varn's stream and ours. Um, Varn, what is your goodbye thing that you say to people? Uh, depends on the day. Usually it's uh, like and subscribe and have a nice day. Have a nice day, by the way, since I'm Southern, is usually a code for go fuck yourself. Although I also will occasionally just end the show with telling people to go fuck themselves. So I don't know. Do whatever makes you happy, people. Protect your peace. Uh, have have some sanity. Argue amongst each other in a fair and 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 uh, loving way. And if you can't argue amongst each other in a fair and loving way, make sure that when you stab them, that they bleed out quickly and it doesn't hurt. Oh them. my god! Um, that is the so they... darkest goodbye I've ever heard. <laughs> Toussaint, can you show Derek how we? <laughs> How we say goodbye in TIR land. Um, this has been TIR. <laughs> Make sure you like and mm -hmm. subscribe. Mm -hmm. If you if you watch this show and you don't subscribe, you're stealing. <laughs> I learned that from PBS. <laughs> like bootlegging a movie. If you're watching this show and you're not subscribed, you've bootlegged a movie. There you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, and your audience just told me to bless my heart, so as a southern man, I now have to challenge your entire audience to a duel. Yeah, it's just like, so. Uh, this is me and Derek Varner saying this to you people that dare fucking tr cross us. We coming for you, nigga. Yep, but he's not saying the last part. He's thinking it, but he's yeah, not saying but, it. And does that count? <laughs> we are out. Peace.